0: you are listening to a raw collective podcast as you may know i'm a big fan of taking saunas they've got numerous health benefits so they make you feel great and they're not a bad place to just escape your kids for a bit of me time so i'm super excited to announce that this season of well and good is brought to you by found space these guys are an incredible infrared sauna company and they are giving away one of their infrared saunas to our listeners Yes, that's right. They're giving away a whole sauna. So listen along and find out how you can win. Alrighty, okay, so today's conversation was um, was a bloody good one. Dr. Sarah Lazar. Or Sarah Lazar. I asked her at the start of this conversation, is it Sarah or Sarah? And she said it doesn't matter. And I think she was actually just getting confused with my accent. But anyway, I went with Sarah and she responded to it, so that's what I'm gonna call her. She is one of the world's leading neuroscientists in the field of mindfulness and meditation and the effect that it has on the brain. This was a really cool conversation because I mean so Sarah's been studying this for over 20 years looking into understanding exactly what happens to the brain and why and all the different ways it benefits people when we meditate and this is something that I've always wondered because I've been meditating for a number of years and I know it's really good for us and people say you know we should be doing it because of this and that and I always wanted to know like, what's actually happening? Like what's the science behind that? And that's exactly what Sarah has been studying and what she talks about today and explains to us. The conversation goes over many of the different benefits and how meditation can be used and yoga, how they can be used to benefit us in different ways and what parts of the brain it's benefiting. Like for example, how people can defy the effect of aging and actually grow their brains into their 80s. One thing to mention, the audio does get a little bit shit. Unfortunately, this sometimes happens when we're talking with people on the other side of the world. And um, it happened that Sarah was actually talking to us in Boston during a bit of a heat wave and her laptop started overheating. So her cooling fan in her laptop starts whirring about halfway through this conversation. Please just ignore that and enjoy the conversation. I'm keen to know what is the weirdest or most interesting thing that you have done for the benefit of your health be it for your physical health or for your mental health
1: yeah well so what most people consider the weirdest i did a six-week retreat which was pretty intense
0: and what did you do on that retreat
1: what i did i was silent oh it was a silent retreat 24 7 for six weeks for six weeks wow i did it at the end of 2019 and everyone's like oh my god six weeks how could you do that for six weeks and just be all cooped up for six weeks?" And then, of course, right after that was the lockdown. And six weeks into the lockdown, I was like, see, it's gone by so fast. <laughs> like, I just don't notice it. You know? And so it was, it was pretty intense, though. It was a momentous occasion in my life.
0: Wow. I mean, I've heard of 11 days or two weeks of silent retreats, but six weeks is pretty amazing. I know a lot of people who are just doing like the 11 day kind of thing. I think it's like day two and then day six or something. That's when people will will drop out if they're going to drop out. It's incredibly tough. How did you cope with that?
1: Yeah. No, so I started off with 10-day retreats, 11-day retreats. You know, the first two were just like, oh, my God. You know, thank God that's over. But then after I did like three or four of them, I started feeling like I was just starting to really settle and get cooking. And, up oh, the retreat was over. So then I did a couple of two-week retreats. And then I was like, okay, yeah, I'm ready. And so I, I was hoping to do three months because they they do, in the Buddhist tradition, the monks do a three-month retreat every year. And so the place where I practice, they give you the option of either the full three months or just half of, you know, six weeks or six weeks. But my schedule, I can only do six weeks. But I was bumming. I really wanted to do the full three months.
0: Wow. What sort of um, takeaways or learnings or adaptations you felt in yourself? Like, what, what did you get out of it?
1: So all retreats of any length, you just get all these personal insights. Like you see these little habits of mind that you never noticed before you experience things you've never experienced before you get new perspectives on things you know it just is a lot of that sort of stuff and then also you know you definitely get into some weird head spaces I don't do a lot of that you know definitely I get there occasionally but not always and it's just I'm just very calm and it's then when I came out that's when you really notice things it's because then it's like you're noticing okay you're interacting with things differently than you normally interact with and you're noticing things you don't really notice
0: Wow. And I mean, coming from your, your understanding of the brain, you must be thinking, oh, wow, this brain matter in this part of my brain that must have like grown or something, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that can actually be a bit of a downside. You're sitting there meditating. It's like, okay, what's my amygdala doing right now? Okay. <laughs> so you just go, like, okay, let go of that. And
0: yeah. Yeah, man, fascinating. So, I mean, you're a neuroscientist and you've been studying meditation and the effects of meditation on the brain for almost 30 years. How did you get into it? Because I imagine as a neuroscientist, if you told people, you know, 25 years ago that you were going to be studying meditation, you'd get some funny looks.
1: Yeah. I mean, even like a year or two before, if you told me I was going to do it, I would have said, yeah, no, I don't think so. Really? So what happened was right. So I was a runner and I developed running injuries and I went to the see a physical therapist and they said, okay, you have to stop running and just stretch. And as I was leaving the office, I happened to notice an ad for a vigorous yoga class and it said, you know, promote stretching and you know, strength and flexibility. So I thought, OK, you know, I'll go to this yoga class as a form of physical therapy. Right. And at that point, I was like, OK, yoga is hippy dippy. No, I don't think so. And so, you know, I went to the yoga class and the teacher's like, oh, it'll do this for you. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. But after a couple of classes, I was like, oh my goodness, I am more centered. I am more calm. I'm <laughs> less <laughs> You know, I could really notice it even after just a few classes. So I really got into yoga. And then one of my yoga teachers always included a little bit of meditation at the end of class. And I really liked that. So then I started going into more into meditation. And then um, I want to understand what was going on. I could see that my brain was working differently, right? Like, like I said, like it was like the way I interacted with the world was changing. So I knew my brain was being rewired somehow. And so uh, I just wanted to understand that.
0: I'm interested on the yoga aspect of it as well, because do you think that yoga by itself can help with developing the brain in these certain areas, or, or is it mainly the meditation?
1: Yeah, no, definitely. They both do, and they both contribute. So we've done a couple of studies with long-term meditators and long-term yoga practitioners. And in some people, of course, do both. It's like, you know, they mostly do meditation, they mostly do yoga. And what we see is that there is a lot of overlap, but it's sort of like with exercise and like, okay, it's okay, the bicep versus the tricep. You know, it's that sort of thing. Like, okay, they both are generally good for physical fitness, but this one's a little bit more for this and this one's a little bit more for that.
0: Yeah, okay. Over the years, what have you been studying? Like what questions did you pose and how did you go about studying it and what did you find out?
1: Right, so the first studies we did We're just like, okay, so can we see any differences between people who regularly practice and people who don't? So how are the brains of long-term meditators different from the brains of beginners? And so that then sort of gave us some ideas of, okay, what changes? But one of the criticisms of that is, well, you know, people who've been practicing for many years, maybe they're, you know, people who choose to practice are different from people who don't practice, right? Or, you know, lots of times people who practice regularly, they're also vegetarian or there's something else about their lifestyle. So we don't know that it was really the meditation, you know, it could have been something else. So then we started looking at these eight-week secular meditation courses for stress reduction. And so we put people in these programs and we compared how their brain changed in just eight weeks compared to doing nothing. Newer studies were comparing meditation, these eight-week meditation programs, to active programs. So we compared it to exercise. We compared it to creative writing. We compared it recently to like crossword puzzles and Sudoku for cognitive functioning. And then in every case, what we're seeing is that. So, for instance, exercise is really good for reducing stress. And so, in terms of stress, meditation and exercise were the same. But then we looked at fear conditioning, right? So they saw the light and got a very mild electric shock, and how they dealt with that was very different between the two groups. And just the way the meditation dealt with it was much more adaptive but like there's less anxiety less he was associated with a more adaptive brain pattern than exercise so exercise is great but meditation gives you something a little bit extra
0: so is that kind of like meditation is great for conditioning you to better deal with stress whereas exercise is more like an acute response to stress like it'll decrease your current stress
1: yeah, I mean, just the exercise is working through a bunch of different mechanisms, and they don't understand all the different ways. So definitely, yeah, like I mean, you go out and exercise, and definitely you feel better afterwards. Definitely, you know, gets out the muscle tension, that sort of things. But then also, you um, they it does change the brain. In particular, it helps the hippocampus, which is really important, and also it seems to engage frontal brain regions, so executive control. Because you know, you have to, you know, I don't want to exercise today, but no, 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 I'm going to exercise today, and I keep with it, and you know, this whole thing. So definitely. Like I said, exercise does really do a lot of good things for your brain. And so it seems like meditation does those things as well, but then it gives you these few extras as well.
0: When you talk about meditation, because there are so many different types of meditation. Right. What, what is the main method that is normally used in studies?
1: Um, there's something called mindfulness-based stress reduction. That was the first program that really took meditation and put it into a secular context and used it in clinical studies. So that's been around now for... I don't know, 40, 50 years, something like that. I think it started in the early 80s. So yeah, like 40 years. So that's the program that when the first one was studied. And so now many similar programs, because that one was specifically for stress. So they've been took it and modified it for depression, for anxiety, for eating disorders, for trauma, for sleep, for all these other conditions as well. But the main basic element of it are the pretty much the same, which is this mindfulness meditation. So there's mindfulness, there's mindfulness meditation, and then there's other forms of meditation right? So mindfulness is often defined as paying attention to the present moment sensor experience in this open, receptive, non-judging way. So anyone can do it. Like, so right now, tune in to the soles of your feet. What, how do your feet feel right now? What can you feel like the temperature or the pressure, or you know, perhaps maybe it's a little tingling or something like that, right? You can do it simple, easy, you know, so we're sitting here talking about it, but now go out and be going about your day and, oh, I need to be mindful. You, You know, I mean, maybe you don't even know the soles of your feet, but like your posture or your breathing or your emotional state, right? Like it's hard to remember to be mindful during the day. And so, mindfulness meditation is a way to sort of strengthen that so that it becomes more natural and more easy to happen spontaneously. And so, the example I like to give is um, playing soccer or playing football, right? So, if I give you a ball and put you in the middle of the field and say, okay, dribble the ball down the field and kick it through the goalposts, no problem, you can do that. But now, put you in the field put a bunch of other professional football players on the field and say, okay, get the ball down the field. <laughs> yeah. And that's going to happen. Right. I mean, you're just going to lose it immediately. Right. And this is why professional athletes practice. So that then they can just in the moment, doesn't matter if there's a surrounded by people and everyone's coming at them, they can, you know, and maneuver and get through it. And so that's what the mindfulness practice does for you is it's so that even when the boss is yelling at you and there's traffic and the kids are screaming, it's like, okay, can you have the mindfulness and it's there and you've got it. You know, so you can then use it to navigate
0: these difficult situations. So mindfulness is essentially just focusing on the present moment. And because I guess like our mind is so often either in the past or in the future, and then that causes doubt and worry and all these things. So you use techniques like focusing on different, say, parts of your body, different sensations to bring yourself into that present moment. And then through doing that, you're essentially training those parts of your brain to be stronger and bitter at doing that when you're not consciously trying to be mindful
1: right exactly so then you're sitting here you know I'm aware that I'm talking to you I'm also aware of my posture and aware of you know you know, you know and stuff like that and so then that's the thing because the idea is that the body has lots of information in it you know so if I'm starting to tense up it's like okay I'm starting to you know tense up you know so it's like um you know, the past example I have to give is, uh, you know, the, I'm not angry. It's like, you know, I know people who will say that and they're completely unaware that, okay, no, that, you know, and so it's like, okay, they're starting to tense up. It's like, okay, I'm starting to tense up. I'm starting to get angry or I'm starting to get you know, upset. Okay, let's breathe and, you know, bring it down before it gets into full blown. Right. And not always, but it helps with that.
0: Okay. So are there different forms of meditation that are also used in any of the the studies? I mean, like I'm coming from a perspective of someone who has, I've tried a few different types of meditation. I've tried a bit of mindfulness meditation, uh, some metabhavana Buddhist meditation, and I now predominantly practice Vedic meditation. And I definitely felt different benefits from the different forms. I'm really interested to know, are different types of meditation, are they better at training your brain in certain areas to elicit different responses and what sort of studies have been done around that?
1: Yeah, we've done a little bit, not a lot, but definitely. And again, it's sort of like, you know, biceps versus triceps. Like, so one study, what we did, could you went through a mindfulness course, or they went through a relaxation course, in both cases, they did a body scan. And so we had them do the body scan in the scanner. So it was identical. They were paying attention to their body, but one was doing it mindfully. And the other one was doing it with the intention to relax. And we could see that difference in the brain. Something as subtle as that, we can see the difference in the brain. There was similarity, but there was also differences. You know, people have also looked at, you know, people who regularly practice mindfulness versus people who do mantra, you know, mindfulness versus yoga. And so again, it's, there's some things that are common, and then there's some things that are a little bit different. And it's still way too early to be able to say like, oh, definitely, okay, this is what yoga is doing for you. And this is what this form of meditation is doing. And this is what that form of meditation is doing. But, but as you noted, you know, subjectively, they are different. And most traditions, most meditation traditions teach you several different practices for this very reason. Because idea is like you don't want to just be doing breath, 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 and only do breath awareness. You really do want to be bringing mindfulness to all aspects of your life. And also because just some days, you know, breath awareness is really hard and you just need something a little bit easier. They have different flavors and different outcomes.
0: For me, I find that when I'm doing like Vedic meditation, which is like, like a mantra based meditation. That for me is a real stress reduction thing. So I imagine it's like training my brain in that. I think it's the amygdala, is that right? That with your stress response. Huh? Whereas I, I remember when I was, I was practicing more metabhavna or loving kindness meditation for a while. And I think that it, like, I seriously think it made me more empathetic. And so like I wondered, you know, that must be training that certain part of my brain that is more
1: exactly, to do with yes. that.
0: Is it as simple as look, thinking about your brain as if, cause we understand how we train muscles, right? Is right. it as simple as thinking about your brain like that?
1: Yeah, definitely. And so what they show is like, so for instance, there's a strip of gray matter cortex along the brain and it's like, okay, here's the face. Here's the thumb. Here's the forefinger. Here's the your middle finger, you your fingers, and then here's your arm. And then here's your trunk and then here's your leg. And then, you know, and you really can, they can show boom, 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 boom. It just lines up perfectly. And so if you work out your arm muscles. You can see that happening in the arm muscle area of that cortex. And what they did is when they had surgery, they'd open up people's brains and they just stuck electrodes in and said, okay, I'm going to stick it here. What happens? Okay. I am gonna stick it there. What happens? And okay, this isn't okay. Secure. It's a right arm twitches. Okay. Secure. Okay. The hand twitches. And so it really is like, you know, every inch of your body is represented in your brain actually in several places. So there's one place where it represents the action and another right next to it, which is the, the sensory. So, you know, I can just be sitting here and all of a sudden I feel like, you know, someone's banging my arm because they're, you know, zapping that part of my brain. And then there's other places in the brain where, you know, it's represented, again, for other reasons, you know. And so it's really interesting. And then there's part of the brain that's just about vision or hearing for, you know, emotions, different aspects of emotions, attention. There's a couple different, there's different types of attention and they all have their own network. It's a complex thing.
0: (laughs) I bet it is. I bet it's not as like, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, you're increasing brain matter in this area that is associated with this attribute or outcome for your personality yeah. or something like that. But I'm sure it's not as simple as that. Right.
1: Well, sort of, yeah, no, definitely. Like, so for instance, like, you know, empathy versus compassion, right. So yeah. they're kind of sort of the same, but they're, they're different your right? Empathy is, um, Often defined as sort of more like, oh, I'm sorry for you, right? Versus compassion is a little bit more held back a little bit sometimes and a little bit more, you know, how can I help you, right? Right. And we can distinguish those in the brain. And then even with an empathy, there's sort of emotional empathy, like, oh, I feel for you versus cognitive empathy, like, oh, I understand how you understand you. And those are different in the brain. Like we can distinguish those in the brain. And so, you know, it's really, you know, if you can distinguish them behaviorally, we can distinguish them in the brain.
0: Wow. (laughs) That's really cool that you can measure that. There's so much cool application for this as well. Like I'm thinking about another practice that I like to do is I take ice baths and and I take saunas as well. And so I wonder if, you know, the benefits of those would show up in the brain, because I think like with ice baths, particularly, there's been a lot of studies to show the physical benefits of it, but I don't know if there's been many to show the neurological adaptations, which would be interesting because I, I feel like there could be some similarities with like that amygdala stress response scenario.
1: I mean, <laughs> still you have to be overcoming the urge to jump out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, yes, yeah, so it's a training. It's a training, right? And so it's like yeah. anything else. Because they I mean, need to train the brain to do just about anything. I mean, it's amazing. You know, like there's these people who can, you know, memorize really long complex lists because they just, they've learned how to, that's what they practice. Right. And they also talk about lots of times about uh, professional athletes who are injured. You know, they just imagine, you know, playing basketball or, you know, and, and doing the motions and they show that that is, it's not as good as actually doing it, but it helps keep them in shape. And they're, when they come back from the injury, they're, they're more, in better condition than if they had not been doing that. So it's really the brain's cool.
0: Yeah, and is that is that basically what neuroplasticity is?
1: Yeah, that's really right. because the brain is, is plastic. You can do almost anything with it, right? I mean that's the thing. If you take up a new language, then language areas are going to wind up. If you learn, you know, some new task, the areas related to that task are going to get uh, lit up and, and change. Mm. And that's you know, as you learn. You know, obviously the brain has to. And it's doing all the time, it's like, ooh, neuroplasticity. like, no, neuroplasticity is happening all the time, right? If people remember tomorrow what they heard right now, that was neuroplasticity, right? So what we're saying right now is being put in the brain. That's neuroplasticity, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. sort of, it's, it's, it sounds, ooh, ooh but it really, it's, no, it's the brain doing it. That's what the brain does.
0: Right. Is there any limit to it? You know, like I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to be training my brain. Neuroplasticity is happening. I'm increasing my brain matter in certain areas. Like, is there a physical component to that where I literally will not be able to make any more brain matter in certain areas? I don't know.
1: It's a short answer. I don't know if I've looked at that. No one's ever asked me that
0: before. A couple of things spring to my mind when I think about that. I had this idea, well, I, it suddenly dawned on me through meditation that love, giving love out, you know, whether you're just thinking about loving people or giving out loving kindness through meditation it dawned on me that you know that's a bottomless pit of love that you can give out like it's limitless so you know you might as well just give out as much as you can because that's something you can give out completely for free and it's just limitless and then similarly with with memory i think i grew up thinking okay i'm gonna there's so much stuff that i can hold in my brain I'm not going to try and remember the stuff that's not important because I don't want to take up my memory space with that. And so I just want to try and focus on just remembering the important stuff. But the reality is, it's like limitless, right? Your your memory potential.
1: Well, not limitless, but yeah. I mean, you can. You, and it's amazing what goes into your brain that you're unaware of, right? Like if I asked you, okay, you know, what did you eat for breakfast yesterday? You could probably tell me. You know, mm. like did you try to remember that? No. <laughs> but I mean, but there is at some point, yeah, you definitely, you do hit limits, but you can, you know, it's amazing to me. So you know, I have a son and when he was in high school, you know, he was talking about stuff. I like, I had stuff I hadn't thought about in 30 years when I was in high school. And it's like, oh yeah, I remember that. And it was amazing to me how much I remembered from, you know, that I had, I had not touched it in 30 years, but it was in there.
0: Interesting how your brain um, chooses to remember some stuff a lot better than others. Yeah. Do you know much about that? Like what triggers your brain to remember some things and not other things?
1: Well, certainly emotions, right? So they've done a lot of studies where like, I can tell you two versions of a story. And one story is like really plain dry. Another one has like, a, like you know, someone was walking down the street and they ran into a friend and, you know, they talked and then, you know, they continued walking and then it's the exact same thing. But, you know, he walks and talks and then you know, there's the car crash yeah. And then like, and there would be details of like, so like, okay, you know, you're walking down, you know, fourth street and you ran to your friend Joe and he talked to you about blah, blah, blah. Right. And so then I ask you 20 minutes later, okay. We call that story. And so if you heard the story without the car crash, you forget half the details, but if it was the one with the car crash and you remember the car crash, but you also remember Joe fourth street, you know, all those details as well. So emotions just always add to the memories and then also, you know, salience, So if you you really need to memorize this because it's on the test tomorrow, then you're really going to remember it because, again, it's emotional to it. Mm. But and also, I think some people just for whatever reason, they just pick up certain facts or certain types of information of interest. You know, people who are interested in meditation, they're going to remember this much better than people who are not interested in meditation.
0: Alright, just cutting in here. I'm just going to share a little quick message from our sponsor, Found Space, and also fill you in on how you can win that sauna. Now, as a listener of Well and Good, you're probably someone who prioritizes your health and well-being. Well, have you ever tried an infrared sauna before? Or have you even considered having one in your own home? I have a sauna at my place, and it's been the best investment in my health. I seriously think it has been. Now since 2008, Space has installed thousands of state-of-the-art low-EMF infrared saunas across Australia, and they now deliver and install anywhere in New Zealand. An infrared sauna is such a powerful health tool because it addresses multiple fundamental areas of your health in one session. They help you to de-stress and sleep well, manage your weight, find relief from chronic pain, and recover efficiently from workouts, plus heaps more. And they don't just sell you a sauna. The Found Space Sauna specialists are ready to chat about your health challenges and goals, help you find the perfect sauna for your home, and then integrate it into your routine to get the best results. To enter the chance to win your very own Found Space Sauna, just hit the link in the show notes. The show notes can be found in the description of this podcast on whatever app you're listening to this podcast on. So go on, get entering. The competition is only open to New Zealand residents and entries close 31st of October, 2022. Now, back to the chat. Are people genetically predisposed to having a better memory or?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of debate around that. And again, maybe memory for what? I mean, so for facts and figures versus social information versus... Yeah, sure. You know, that sort of thing. And so, like, you know, especially if you're someone who you know, grew up in a jungle, yeah, you may not remember facts and figures, but you know the difference between you know, that rock versus that rock versus that tree and you know, that sort of thing. So,
0: yeah, it's very subjective, isn't it?
1: Yeah, again, because it's like, what is salient? What are you paying attention to? What do you care about?
0: Can you talk about the impact of meditation on aging?
1: Yeah, we're just finishing up a study now. So, all right, so our very first study, what we saw was pretty interesting. So we recruited people 25 to 50 years old and... It's well established that between 25 and 50, the brain starts to shrink. And this is why our brain is not quite as sharp as it was when we were younger, right? And what we saw was that in a handful of brain regions, the 50-year-olds has as much brain matter as a 20 year olds So just seeing that in those brain regions is being preserved, right? So again, just like with muscles, right? So if you're using muscle every yeah. day, you're going to retain it, even though the rest of your body goes floppy right over the age. So that's pretty cool. And so then since then, some other people have done similar studies demonstrating that, yeah it seems to help with certain functions be preserved in the brain. And then we're just finishing up a study now where we demonstrate 65 to 80 year olds. They're actually improving. We can actually improve the memory of people 65 to 80 and it's associated with changes in the brain.
0: Wow. And that's through the mindfulness meditation.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Do you do anything else? I know you, you mentioned before that you, there was some, memory tactics and all things that were done in some of the studies as well. Does that coincide with the mindfulness meditation in these studies or is it just mindfulness?
1: Right. Oh well mindfulness meditation, right. Yeah. And so like all of our studies, we've done some studies with long term practitioners, but all the pre post studies we've always had mindfulness. Well that's not we don't work too with yoga now. But <laughs> mostly we've done mindfulness.
0: Yeah, okay. And what about like how long do these changes last for? How long do these adaptations last for? If someone made these improvements, do they last for ages or do you need to keep practicing
1: right so that's a big question so the study we're doing now we're doing one and two year follow-up and we see not only is it maintained some of the benefits start to go down some of the maintain some actually go up with more and more practice and it's hard because you know some people really are practicing every day some people not so much and so it's hard to say exactly how much you need to maintain the different functions and then also some things you get like so what do I mean by that is like um sometimes when you're meditating, you realize that the reason why I'm really stressed out is because I've got this issue with this person and I'm realizing, oh, okay, I don't need to have that issue with that person anymore, right? And so the once I see that, I've got that, you know, that's no longer going to bother me, right? Or that I have a certain habit pattern or I have certain expectations that are completely unreasonable. And so then once I see that, I've got that. And so then that stress is no longer there in my life, right? Which is great. But then you also, from sitting and meditating, you also just get you know, that calm, centered, and then you're just, you know, that sort of lasts for a little bit after you practice. So that's going to go away. You start practicing, obviously. But the, you know, the inside of that, oh yeah, I do not need to worry about this. You've got that forever. So there's a little bit of both. Cognition, right. So the cognition probably you need to continue practicing.
0: Okay. One of the main benefits of meditation for me is, say I'm going to meditate for 20 minutes. I might spend 10 minutes just thinking about all the things that I need to you know, shine a, a torch on in my brain. But it's like, yeah. if I do that then, then it's I'm not going to be thinking about all these things when I'm trying to sleep at nighttime.
1: And also, you can't, and there's this idea that, okay, I'm going to completely shut off my brain and just be, and that doesn't happen, right? I mean, it can happen, but typically not for people who are just practicing 10, 15 minutes a day, right? But also, um, just anecdotally, what a lot of people I know say is that, yeah, usually at the first 10, 15 minutes, like, yeah, the mind is just, you know, one of my teachers talks about, it's like you're on the highway and then you want to just stop. Like, no, 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 no. You have to get on the off ramp. <laughs> and so sometimes the off ramp may take five, 10 minutes, 15 minutes to off ramp, and then you come to a stop. And so that's why, not so much now, but sometimes in the past, I actually, because the mantra is a little bit easier to do. And so um, I know some people who, when they first start meditating, they'll spend the first five, 10 minutes doing mantra or something like that to sort of help the minds settle down and then they can then shift into the mindfulness. Right. And so typically what I do is I tend to do a very active body scan, you know, sort of focus and calm my mind. And that takes like five minutes. And then I'm calm and I'm focusing and I can go into my mindfulness.
0: So when you say you do an active body scan, do you just mean that's quite intensive?
1: Well, right. So it's like, okay, like really, so it's not just like, whoosh, Body scan. It's like okay. like really okay. I'm going to pay attention to the top of my head. Okay, and then and really deliberately moving my attention, you know, through my body.
0: Okay, so then you've done your body scan, and then you move into your mindfulness meditation. What is that like for you?
1: It varies from day to day. <laughs> because some days yep. the meditation, the body scan works, and I'm nice and calm, cool, focused. Other days, yeah, now my mind's sort you know chattering away. I often do sounds. That's my best anchor is sounds in the distance, and so just you know, and then if my mind starts to wander, I let go, go back to sounds in the distance, but then also periodically sort of checking on the body and the posture. And then, but also at the same time, because in order to do that, you sort of have to be monitoring the mind and sort of noticing, okay, the thoughts are starting, okay, let them go, go back to the sounds.
0: What's the ideal protocol for someone? (laughs) Has that been studied or is it possible to be studied?
1: Yeah, no, everyone needs something different. I mean, I think you definitely need, you know, some sort of off-ramp. You know, for me, it's the body scan for some people it might be mantras. Other people can, I know can just drop in. It's like, okay, yeah. And they just were ready right for the breath of awareness. You know, some people it's this whole long, like I think in the Buddhist traditions, there's often like you recite at the beginning of the day, there's like a whole long thing that you recite and it takes about 20, 30 minutes to go through the whole recitation. And you always do that first. And then you go into the meditation. And so if you're setting the intention and you're honoring the Buddha and this whole thing, when I'm on a retreat, sometimes I'll do that. You know, it does. It sort of helps, again, sort of break up the normal thoughts, let all that go. Okay.
0: What about like the ideal amount of time? You know, people talk about twice a day for 20 minutes is like brilliant if you can manage to do that. Yeah. Is there also like a better time of day to do meditation? Like, is there, Does your brain go through any circadian rhythm where it's like better to meditate or anything?
1: So 4 a.m. <laughs> is the <laughs> ideal time to meditate for most people, not for everyone. For most is people. it really? Yeah. And so, okay. And so so monks, they do that. monks will often only sleep like four hours a night. And usually it's like, I think like 10 to two or something like that, or midnight to 4 a.m. And then they get up. And then that's why is because so because of circadian rhythms and the way the light cycles go, if you're going to wake up in the middle of the night because you need to pee, it's probably around 4 a.m. Right. Mm, It's because naturally the circadian rhythms 4 a.m. and 4 p.m. is when we switch between two dominant systems in the body. Like, so the, the fight or flight and the rest and relax. And so that's why, you know, guys get four o'clock shadow and you get the four o'clock munchies in the afternoon, you know, in the late afternoon. And all that's because you're shifting over. Also, like if, when you're sick, you know, how you'll be feeling great all day and all of a sudden late in the afternoon you crash. Oh, yeah. Because so those yeah. two systems are shifting and you're going from the fight or flight during the day into the rest and relax. So the opposite happens at 4 a.m., right? So all the stuff that is getting your, Brain saying, "Okay, time to wake up." All that's starting to happen right around four AM, and so four to five AM is like a great time to meditate for a lot of people because you're just naturally very alert and very awake, and the brain's chemicals are all doing that. But in order to take advantage of that, you can't be like doing the average lifestyle that we live and staying up until midnight, you know, watching TV and you know, talking yeah. and that whole thing. You know, because the monks, of course, they have a very You know, they go to bed early and, you know, they have a very sedate lifestyle. They only need four hours of sleep. Whereas if we really need eight hours of sleep, I mean, if you want to go to bed at like 8 (laughs) p.m. And so get your eight hours and wake up at 4 a.m. You know, but yeah, people don't do that. Right. So, right. So the way I like to think about it is sort of like, like swimmers and bikers, you know, they'll shave all their body hair because they don't want to drag, you know, the resistance. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, okay. So if you're an elite cyclist, shave your legs, right. And shave your body hair. For the rest of us, it doesn't really make a difference. And I think the same is true for 4 a.m., right? And so, like, if you're really intent on, then yes, rearrange your life and wake up at 4 a.m. But if you just want to do meditate for stress reduction, whatever works for you. Actually, late in the day is actually my best time to practice. Actually, right now is my best time to practice. <laughs> um, so, it's, uh, you know, late in the day is like just when my mind tends to be most settled. You know, so some people practice right when they first wake up. Some people, you know, late at night, right before they go to bed. And some people in the middle of the day. And again, you know, twice a day, 20 minutes is great. 40 minutes once a day is great. Even two or three, four minutes a day is really great. So pretty much whatever you can do. The other nice thing about mindfulness, which is different than some, I guess you could do mantra too, is um, having little throughout the day. So for instance, like every time the phone texts, you know, text arrives on your phone, before you just oh, grab it and see who's calling or who's texting. Just pause for a moment, check in, be mindful for just a moment, and then check your phone. Right. Or I know one guy, he said every time he reached for a doorknob, he was very aware of his mindful of his arm, you know, reaching and moving and then his hand making contacts, you know, and feeling the doorknob as he reached the doorknob. Right. Or some people, when they're stopped at stoplights, they'll just, okay, just for those 30 seconds while the stoplights red, you know, they're just gonna check in with their breathing and just be mindful. You know, and just the little things like that throughout the day, they can add up. You know, it's better to get a bigger, longer chunk of time, but those little things throughout the day really
0: do help. Yeah, I love that. The idea of putting a yeah, like a physical trigger that you'll just remember to try and be mindful when you do that action. That's that's great actually doing that. But yeah, I, it, it does make me wonder, like, I feel as though if I meditate or I try to meditate for say three minutes or something, it's that three minutes that I'll just be, my mind will be kind of going a bit crazy. And like I said before, it takes me like 10 minutes until I feel like I'm getting into a meditative state. Does it matter that you're not getting into that deep meditative state
1: yeah no so what a lot of teachers say is that it's just the intention'm just trying it and also because the idea is that even if your mind is going crazy can you step back and see your mind being crazy can you find that part of your mind that's watching and noticing that your mind is just better than my mind is not settling down today and that's what you want to be aware of that which is aware right because there's the blah 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 like you're not blah 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 right who's listening to blah 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 you know so can you make that distinction of like, okay, part of me is watching my mind go blah, 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 you know, and, so, and check out and be with that. Right. Mm-hmm. So don't get lost in the chatter. Watch the chatter.
0: Yeah. That's what the hell they talk about. the be the watcher. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. It's also fascinating that the monks, they figured out this 4am thing, right? They didn't need any brain scans or science to figure that out for themselves as well. But it's, it's quite interesting now that we have the technology to figure out these things and circadian rhythms and all this sort of stuff to then prove that they were so onto it. Right.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Do you find that a lot with your line of science is that there's a lot of innate discoveries that have been passed down through generations and we figured out just as humans. And then now you're able to monitor that and measure that and it's kind of shedding new light on it.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, because the Buddhist philosophy has always been self is not real, the self is a construct and it's coming out really clearly beautifully in neuroscience. Like, you know, we cannot find a me part of the brain. And it really is clear that, okay. And then also, I mean, it's happening now with psychedelics too. Like you can see, okay, you can turn off the me sensitive self and okay, you can see that happening with the brain.
0: Wow. Consciousness. Yeah. There is a lot of stuff that we can measure with the brain through technology now that a hundred years ago, people would have thought was, um, you know, magic. Right. Right. But now we've got science to explain it. Do you think there's some stuff now that we think of as like, we don't understand it, say like consciousness or maybe Love being an energy, or yeah, just different things like that. Are, are there things that you think that science will be able to explain in time?
1: Yeah, oh, definitely. yeah. And there's a couple of ideas now about like quantum and stuff like that. because you know, right now we're very linear, but it's I think quantum like a little bit that red is like, yeah, I mean, because we don't really understand like how the cells are talking to each other and we know a little bit like the chemical, but it's electrical is happening too. We don't really completely understand what's happening electrically, and again like, there's quantum stuff going on. And even like memory, like I said, it's amazing that there's something in my brain I've not thought about in 30 years and there it is. And even like how exactly is a memory formed? And you think about it, it's like, okay, how fast are we talking? It's being encoded somehow that fast in our brain, which is just, and then it'll be there for weeks or months or possible years, depending on what this is, right? And that to me is amazing, right? And we don't even have really have a clue about how that really happens yet. I think eventually maybe we'll get there, but you know, not now. No.
0: Do you think that technology needs to develop in certain ways for us to better understand that sort of stuff?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, because MRI is great, but definitely has limitations. And, you know, definitely variations of it are being developed that help in various different ways. But definitely new tools will always come along. Mm. Yeah, like in the, like in the 70s, EEG. I was like, oh, my God, EEG will explain the brain. You know, and now it's like, yeah, EEG, okay. You tells tell us a couple of things, but yeah, no. And so an MRI... What's EEG, sorry? Oh, EEG, like you know, like, like the oh, athlete, EEG, yep, yeah, big animal waves, you in know, the you know, brainwaves, right? And Arizona thought, that, oh, well, we'll figure everything out of the brainwaves. It's like, yeah, no, I mean, definitely it revealed some things, but it was the, very limited. And MRI still is a lot more. Putting the two together is also very useful, but it's really clear that, yeah, they're still just stretching the surface.
0: What about meditation making people happier? Yeah, is that proven science?
1: It's interesting. There isn't like a happiness scale. There are stress Mm. scales. There are well-being scales. Like, so how satisfied you are with your life. There aren't really scales that say, how happy are you? (laughs) Which is interesting. And so, Mm. yes, no, there's something that says, oh yeah, you're happier, but they show that you're less depressed, you're less stressed, you're less anxious, and you have increased well-being and you're more satisfied. So if you call that happiness, yes. And contentment, I guess. Yeah. So how exactly do you define happy?
0: exactly. A lot of the time when I have felt happiest, I have been present. Yes. And so I think that that has a big part of it. The relationship between meditation and happiness is that feeling of being present. Yes. Do you think personally that you are happier through all your meditation practice?
1: Oh God. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely. Yes. You know, because again, the absence of the anxiety and depression and the, yeah, all that stuff like you're talking about different practices, you know, there's gratitude practices, there's joy practices, there's kindness and compassion practices, you know, love practices. And so definitely doing all those things. And I've seen a lot more of that in my life. Yeah.
0: You just touched on like depression and anxiety. I know there's some stuff that's been done. I don't know if you have done some studies on this as well, um, to do with using meditation to treat certain conditions like anxiety and depression and
1: yeah. Yeah, no, definitely done some of that. So, for instance, uh, the amygdala, like with anxiety. So, the amygdala is the main fight or flight part of the brain. And in the first study, what we showed is that changes in the amygdala correlated with changes in stress. So the more stress reduction people reported, the smaller the amygdala became. Now, it's just normal, everyday stress people. So then we did it with people with anxiety, and we showed okay, not only was it getting smaller, but like the connections between the amygdala and other parts of the brain were changing. And those changes correlate with decreases in anxiety. So people with general anxiety, which is, there's lots of different types of anxiety, but normally, you know, happy people, you say happy, you know, angry people, you're, you know, you have negative response to anger, but for most of us, like a neutral face, you know, your middle doesn't respond. It's just neutral. But for people with anxiety, certain types of anxiety, a neutral face is threatening because they don't know. You know, because the person, oh, yeah. you know, because there's, there's no information. And so their amygdala fires like similar to an angry face and a neutral face. And what we showed is that after the eight weeks, their amygdala is no longer responding to the neutral faces. Right. And so they oh. were. Yeah. And so that, again, that's kind of like he said, like a little bit, I guess you can say that's happier because it's like, okay, I'm not being all, you know, how am I interpreting that neutral face? Right. And so, um, and that change in that we, we correlated with their clinical symptoms. So they had less anxiety you know, symptoms and they had less amygdala fire into the neutral faces.
0: Wow, that is so cool. Yeah. And so for someone who has anxiety, would they just basically follow this, the same protocol of mindfulness meditation two times 20 minutes a day?
1: Yeah, definitely. And so what's happened was, so the initial program, like I said, was for stress, you know, generic. So like, you know, therapy has tools specifically for dealing with anxiety and depression. And so now what they've done is they combine them. And so you can take programs that you get sort of the standard psychotherapy tools for anxiety or depression, and you could pair it with meditation. So you're getting meditation and standard psychotherapy tools. And those, those are more effective than just meditating. I mean, definitely you get yeah. some benefit from meditating, but you get the extra from the, from the therapy.
0: Okay. Yeah. Say someone wanted to start meditating because they've heard about all the benefits and they've listened to you talk and stuff. What would you say to them? Like, how, where's a good place to start? Should they, people start with an app? What's the best way?
1: I think you know again it's one of those it's a personal preference. It's sort of like if you want to start exercising, you know, where do you start exercising? Well, you know, what do you like? I definitely recommend, you know, trying a couple different types because some people love mantra, some people really dislike mantras, some people really love the breath awareness, some people don't, some people love yoga or tai chi. You know, I think especially if you're just going for stress reduction, it's all good. You know, whatever you like is good. I think apps and whatnot, they're fine for getting started, but if you really, you know, want to do it, I really recommend going to a teacher, you know, working with a live teacher, you know, at least once a week going and having a live class. So you can ask questions. So it's really hard with meditation. Like I'm not doing it right. It's not working. And then the teachers can sort of say, oh yeah, no, you know, and sort of guide you with it. Or you think, okay, I'm having this weird experience. And she's like, no, no, that's totally normal. That's fine. Here, pay attention to this. So it's good to have someone you can actually talk to. So I really recommend having a teacher of some sort, but then the apps are great to sort of
0: support daily practice. Yeah, you mentioned meditating in groups. I mean, I feel that my meditation, if I meditate in a group, is a deeper meditation. Like, is there any substance to that? Like, is that an actual thing?
1: I mean, so many people report it, and there's not been any real data on it. But yeah, no, it's definitely, it's a known phenomenon that everyone feels better that in a group. It's not really clear why.
0: It's one of those things that we just can't explain now, but maybe one day we will.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: So in this field, what are you excited about the most? Like... Some of the questions that you have that you're hoping to get answered.
1: Yeah, so right now, like I said, most of my research has been eight weeks. But Of course, for a lot of us, we practice way more than eight weeks. And so the question is, okay, what happens after those first eight weeks? And can we start to document, okay, what happens after a year of practice, two years of practice, three years of practice, and sort of ongoing changes? Because again, it's sort of you know what I find and you know a lot of people report is that it keeps evolving, keeps changing. And so can we start to document some of that? And try to figure out what's going
0: on yeah it's a fascinating area yeah so sarah i'll um i don't want to hold you up too much longer because i know I'm, I'm digging into your meditation time
1: <laughs> thank you
0: if people want to sort of keep updated with what you're up to or follow you in any way how can they do that
1: yeah so i have a twitter now i don't have a whole lot of i think it's like 30 followers i just started it, so i have twitter and so whenever i have anything new i put it on twitter but i do have a um it's just a normal web page and we always put up new information about new papers on the webpage.
0: Okay, great. That's your website. We'll put that in the show notes if people want to check that out.
1: Thank
0: you. Oh, hey, thank you so much, Sarah. I really appreciate the chat today.
1: This was fun.
0: Oh, one last question before you go. What did you think of the podcast? Did you like it? Because if you did, then please rate it and review it and share it and tell people about it. Tell your mum. tell your dad, tell some random guy down the road. It really does make a big difference and it helps us to keep creating this podcast and sharing this awesome information with you for free. This show is brought to you by Raw Collective, the podcast company behind the creation of this show. You will find all updates on the Raw Collective Instagram as well as on the website rawcollective.co. Now get out of here. Go have a good day. Get out of here. Bye.